This is from uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and it's on page uh, 1,233, if you all would like to follow along in the Pew Bibles. Verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all this fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Good morning, Cypress Street. I just wanted to drop in uh, via video today and introduce our guest speaker, who will also be a video today. Uh, our guest speaker today is John Ortberg. He is a uh, pastor and a best-selling author. And one of his books that he wrote is called, Who Is This Man? And it's all about Jesus. And I thought it would be appropriate given where we are in our series called The Gospel, to hear this message from him and just consider some of the facts, historical facts about the difference that this man, Jesus, has made in our world. Uh, it's pretty incredible, and I think you'll be blown away. And I hope today, that just as we did last week, you'll consider who is this man and who is this man to you. And so I'm thrilled to be here and, and especially excited to be here for the start of a series about this person, Jesus. I don't know what you think about him or uh, what your beliefs are about him, but I just want to talk about him for a while in this message and his impact on the world. And I'll start with a question. Let's suppose you wanted to change the world so much that all of history would be divided into what happened before you lived and what happened after you lived. What would you do? It has been done one time. I live 30 minutes south of a city called San Francisco. Why is there a San Francisco? Well, because there was once a man named Francis, Francis of Assisi, and he inspired so much generosity and love that people named cities after him. And he did this because of a man named Jesus. I live 30 minutes north of a city called San Jose. Why is there a San Jose? Well, because there was once a man named Jose, named Joseph, whose life was changed by a man named Jesus. The capital of our state is called Sacramento. Why is there a Sacramento? Well, because a man named Jesus once had a meal that was going to express a staggering idea that God loves so much that he suffers, and that meal became a holy thing, a sacrament. I sometimes drive down to Southern California to see my extended family, and so I drive through Bakersfield. Why is there a Bakersfield? No one knows. Total mystery. But you can't look at a map without being reminded of this man, Jesus. How weird is that 2,000 years later? The impact of his life is so deep that every year his birth remains the most celebrated birth in the world. Who's number two? Nobody's close. The instrument on which his enemies killed him for crying out loud, a cross, has become the most famous symbol, marks more graves, adorns more jewelry than any other symbol in human history. 
And his movement keeps growing, even though those of us who lead it often do such a horrible job, even though his followers are often such train wrecks. There's a uh, guy named Eugene Peterson. Uh, he, he actually wrote a translation of the Bible called the Message Bible. Some of you might have seen that, so he's a real smart guy. But he writes about growing up in a Christian home, and he was picked on in the second grade by a bully named Garrison Johns. And this is what Eugene Peterson, pastor, author, writes. I had been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing, bless those who persecute you and turn the other cheek. Jesus said that. I don't know how Garrison Johns knew that about me, but he picked me for his sport. Most mornings, after, afternoons after school, he would catch me and beat me up. He also found out I was a Christian and taunted me with Jesus' sissy. I arrived home most afternoons, bruised and humiliated. My mom told me it had always been this way for Christians in the world, and I better get used to it. I was also supposed to pray for him. One day I was with a bunch of friends. Garrison caught up with us and started jabbing at me, and that's when it happened. Something snapped. For a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I gripped Garrison. To my surprise and his, I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, pinned his arms with my knees, and he was helpless at my mercy. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fists. It felt good, and I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson in the snow. And this is written by Eugene Peterson, famous pastor, guy who wrote the Bible. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again, more blood. Then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. <laughs> he wouldn't say it. I hit him again, more blood. I tried again, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. <laughs> Jesus' influence endures in the world uh, in spite of not only those who try to oppose him, but often in spite of those who try to follow him. There's a, a great historian thinker from Yale named Yaroslav Pelikan, and he made a fascinating statement. He said, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? You have to ask yourself, guys, forget religion, forget what you think about claims of divinity or God or something. Just consider the man Jesus, because that's who this series is about. For this message, just consider the man Jesus as somebody who lived, just a person that was born and died. Look honestly, with no prejudice, at his impact on our world, and you have to ask, who was this man? If you look at the world where he was born, it was a much more dark and, and difficult world, the ancient world, than a lot of us know. And then there's the world that Jesus saw, and the beauty of his imagination has affected people like nobody else. And then there's the world that he touched, that he impacted. And most people simply have no idea of the impact Jesus has had on our world, because we live in one of those parts of the world that was deeply touched by him. And so what I want to do for the rest of this talk is just reflect together on the impact he's had on our world. We're going to go through a lot of history. This will be laborious, I understand. I'm just going to ask you to put up with it because it's worth knowing about. But every once in a while, I will ask you, are you still with me? 
And uh, I will appreciate it if you say yes. Even if you're not still with me, it will make me feel better if you just say yes. I want to start my name in the obvious. It'd be hard to pick a less obvious candidate to change the world. Uh, this man, Jesus, never held an office, never led an army, never wrote a book, never traveled more than a couple hundred miles from his home. He's never known around the world. And the guys that followed him were remarkably unimportant. The New Testament records themselves call his followers uh, unschooled, ordinary men. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, other side of the world. It is simply impossible to try to conceive of our world if Jesus had not been born. So let's think about some of the ways that he's touched our world. First, he gave the world its most influential movement. Like that movement or not, try to imagine a world with no church. No Notre Dame's Cathedral, no St. Paul's, no storefront churches in Watts, no house churches in China, no real life. And then all the people. Try to imagine history without the Apostle Peter or Paul or Timothy or Aquinas or Augustine or Francis of Assisi or Mother Teresa or Martin Luther, Martin Luther King or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Joan of Arc, John Milton, John Wesley, John Calvin, John Bunyan, John the Baptist, Rusty George, none of those people. But let's go back to the beginning. Let's just think for a moment about the idea of the church. Most folks have never thought about this. In the ancient world, uh, there were a lot of different groupings of folks. There were nations, there were tribes, there were ethnic groups, there were guilds. There were philosophical schools. There were tribal religions. The church was none of those things. Paul said this about the church, that here that is in the church, there is no Greek or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian. Nobody liked Scythians in the ancient world. That's why he threw them in there. Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. Anybody here ever been on a ride called It's a Small World After All? That song will drive you insane after, by the time you get off on that ride. But, but if you've ever been on it, it's just this picture of people of every gender and every nationality and every status all there together. Question, where before the church was there a movement that actively sought to include every single human being, regardless of ethnicity, status, wealth, or gender, to be loved and transformed. Again, most people don't understand. Not only had there never been a community like this before, there had never been the idea of a community like this before that would include everybody. It was his idea. He started it. And by the way, some folks are a part of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or a 12-step group. The 12 steps came directly out of uh, something called the Oxford Group that was an attempt to live out discipleship to Jesus. No Jesus, no 12 steps. Uh, this is not to say that apart from Jesus, there would never have been an actionable vision of all the human race as family. It's just saying as a matter of historical reality, such a vision did occur in human history, and it began with a poverty-stricken, crucified... Who was this man? Jesus changed how we think about history. Most folks don't reflect on this. Now, in our day, in a place like California, we expect to see progress. Often there'll be surveys that'll ask, do you think that life will be better in the next generation than it was in the last? No one in the ancient world ever asked a question like that. They didn't do surveys like that. 
Cultures generally thought of existence in terms of cycles, just an endless repetition of ups and downs, the wheel of fortune. Events were dated by rulers, year one of Augustus, and so on. Over time, the power of every Caesar and their grip on the human imagination faded. But the strangest thing happened. Another vision grew more compelling. Vision that began with a man who had no power at all. And, and half a millennia after him in the 6th century, there was a monk, a Scythian monk. He proposed a calendar that was centered not on the founding of the Roman Empire, but on the birth of this carpenter, Jesus. Now, the creation of the Christian calendar was not just a chronological convenience. It was a claim. It was an idea that existence is not a random cycle, but it has a meaning. And it's leading someplace. And its critical event is the life of this Jewish rabbi. Jesus himself lived and died. And Caesar and Rome never heard a hint of his existence. But Jesus was called by his disciple John in the book of Revelation. Within a few decades of when Jesus lived. The Lord of Lords. And the King of Kings. And you understand, if you've heard that language, that's not just poetry. That's an idea. Take all the kings, all the power brokers, all the CEOs. Put them all in a group. Jesus is king over them. He's not just king. He's not just the greatest king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Now in the first century, while he still had only a very small number of followers, such a claim was laughable. Yeah, right. King of kings. This crucified carpenter. If you were around in the first century and you had to bet on whose influence would last longer, Jesus or the Roman Empire, nobody would put their money on this crucified carpenter and his motley little crew. And yet, here we are, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the planet, and we still give our children names like Peter, Paul, and Mary, and we give our dogs names like Caesar and Nero. <laughs> 2,000 years after his birth, every time any human being anywhere on the planet looks at the date, we were reminded daily that Jesus Christ and no other has become the hinge of history. That Nero died in 68, the year of our Lord. That Napoleon died in the year of our Lord, after Domino, after the Lord, 1821. That the the tyrant Stalin died in the year of our Lord, 1953. Maybe, maybe Jesus is not the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But how strange is it that now every ruler who ever reigned, every nation that rise and falls must be dated in reference to the life of Jesus. Who is this man? Again, whenever you think about God or religion, who, who does this with their life? Jesus shaped how we express compassion. And again, most folks don't know or reflect much about this. Now, all human beings have the capacity for compassion. But Jesus shaped this in ways largely not understood in our day. It's part of what I love about him so. In the ancient world, in Greece and Rome, it was generally the beautiful and the noble and the strong that were admired. Kind of like in Hollywood. And the rich might give money for public works, but it was a way to show the rich man's greatness. The weak, the marginal, were generally considered useless and not valued. In the first century, there was a Roman writer named Seneca, and he wrote this. 
uh, that in Rome, we drown children at birth when they are weak and abnormal. And that wasn't considered embarrassing or shameful. That was just how human beings were thought of. We drown them at birth if they're abnormal or weak. In the ancient world, a child could be left to die if it was the wrong gender. Anybody want to guess what the wrong gender was? It's a girl. In the ancient world, there are about 1.4 million boys for every 1 million girls. The other 400,000 girls were left to die. But these followers of Jesus remember that he said, let the little children come to me. And they actually started to take in abandoned children. Okay, this happened in history. They began the practice of godparents who would care for little children if their biological parents died. And then they began orphanages. And these changes are so powerful that one book in our day that is written about these changes is simply titled, When Children Became People, The Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity. Widows, who were actually taxed by the Roman Empire for having the bad taste to live after their husbands and be a drag on the economy, were taken in and cared for by the church, which remembered when Jesus was dying on a cross, he said to his friend John, now my mom is going to be your mom, you take care of her. In the first three centuries of the church, one of the main reasons it grew so much is there were two major epidemics that destroyed up to a third of whole populations. Think about the panic if a third uh, of Southern California got destroyed. One writer says that it created such a panic in the general population that at the first onset of the disease, people pushed the sufferers away, fled from their dearest throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses like dirt, hoping to spread the fatal disease, or hoping to avoid this, the fatal disease. But people in this strange little community called the church would bring in sick people to whom they were not related, that they did not know, and care for them at risk of their own life. All because this Jesus that they followed cared for lepers and the blind and the deaf and the lame. And in the 4th century, what was essentially the first hospital was begun by a man named Benedict who followed Jesus. And by the 6th century, religious communities, monasteries that followed Jesus would commonly have hospitals attached to them. And over the time, this idea that we ought to have compassion on all who suffer began to spread and take root in the human race. At the Geneva Convention, an organization was begun to alleviate human suffering and it chose as its symbol a large cross on its flag. It's known as the Red Cross. That is not an accident. When you hear of groups like the Salvation Army or World Vision or the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association, or Goodwill, or Easter Seals, or Habitat, or Food for the Hungry. When you go to hospitals and they have names like Good Shepherd, or St. Anthony's, or the Good Samaritan, you are seeing the shadow of Jesus. The autistic or Down syndrome, the disabled, the mentally ill, the broken, these were viewed by our ancient ancestors as burdens to be discarded. To see them instead as bearers of divine glory who can teach us and ennoble us, this is what Jesus saw. Now this is not to say that there would be no compassion in the world without Christianity. And God knows that those of us who call ourselves Christians often far way, way short. 
But one uh, writer put it like this. If you ask what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion, I would suggest that wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lowly, schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages, for those who will never be able to repay, this probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. Who is this man? Who does this? You all still with me? Um, the Jesus movement shaped education. Now, of course, people have always loved to learn, but in the ancient world, with the Greeks and the Romans and others, formal education was reserved for male children of wealthy family. But there's this weird little community called the church, and they remembered that they followed a guy who taught everybody and commanded them to go out and teach everybody. So they started to teach everybody, men and women, boys and girls, slave and free, poor and rich. Nobody was doing that. About uh, by the fourth century, some of Jesus' followers entered into these communities. They're called monastic communities. And for centuries, these were the only institutions in all of Europe that would preserve not just the Bible and books about the Bible, but also the great pagan classical texts. And then churches began to build schools. And then the church began to build universities. University of Paris was maybe the first one about the 12th century. And then came Oxford and Cambridge. They were built by the church. The motto of Oxford University is, the Lord is my light. And then Harvard. And then Yale. 92% of all colleges and universities started in the United States before the Civil War were founded in his name. With the Reformation came the idea that every individual ought to be able to read the Bible for themselves. And that, more than anything else, ignited a dream for universal literacy. Everybody ought to be able to read. Martin Luther said he would write a book about parents who neglect the education of their children. This is what Martin Luther wrote. This is a direct quote. I shall really go after the shameful, despicable, damnable parents who are not parents at all, but despicable hogs and venomous beasts devouring their own young. Luther had a hard time expressing his emotions sometimes. <laughs> um, in America, the first law to require public funding for mass education, a lot of debates about education in our day, and what about those that are most likely to be forgotten? The first law to require public funding for mass education was called the Old Deluder Satan Act. Isn't that a snappy name for a piece of legislation? The Old Deluder Satan Act. Because they believe that education honors God because it enables us to think God's thoughts after us and that illiteracy and ignorance and a lack of education dishonors God and is a tool of the evil one. In fact, one of the dominant thinkers of the 20th century, a guy named Alfred Whitehead, was asked, what made it possible for science to emerge in our day? And his answer was fascinating. He said, it, was, it goes back to the Middle Ages, it was the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. Now, that's not to say that science would not have arisen otherwise. A lot of people in our day think that faith and science are at odds with each other. One scholar put it like this, science as an organized, sustained enterprise arose only once in human history in Europe in the civilization then called Christendom, where people believed that creation came from a rational God 
who was creative, so we would have to study it in order to understand it. The great explosion of technology in the Middle Ages was in monastic communities. Most people don't know about this. Uh, mechanical clocks were invented because monks needed to know when to pray. We first hear about eyeglasses in a sermon because monks needed to be able to pour over the texts. Not making this up, Dom Perignon was actually the name of a Benedictine monk who contributed to the production of champagne because there were no Baptists to tell him it was a sin to drink it. <laughs> uh, the alphabet of the Slavic peoples is called Cyrillic. They had no written alphabet, and so a follower of Jesus named Cyril created one for them so that they would be able to read the Bible. In nation after nation, followers of Jesus found languages that had not yet been committed to writing. And in acts of stupendous sacrifice and heroism, they set about to, to that task. In many, many, many cases, the first effort at the scientific study of languages was from Christian missionaries. They compiled the first dictionaries. They wrote the first grammars. They developed the first alphabets. The first important proper name written in more languages than any other was the name of Jesus, who himself never wrote a book. The Gospels are translated into more than 2,200 languages. No other book is translated into one-fifth that many. Who was this man? Don't believe that he's God. Don't believe it. It's almost harder to explain the impact of him if you consider him just as a man. And this is the world in which we live. The Jesus movement revolutionized art. Try to imagine this. Without Jesus, there's no Dante whose divine comedy shaped modern Italian. There's no Martin Luther whose German Bible shaped uh, modern German. There's no King James Bible, which along with Shakespeare shaped English. There's no Johannes Bach who signed all of his works to the glory of God. No hallelujah chorus, no Mozart requiem, no Gregorian chants. In fact, um, notes, if you've ever taken music lesson, modern note, notation, was an invention of the medieval church so that the worship of Jesus could spread. Imagine no Sistine Chapel, no Da Vinci Last Supper, no Pieta. There simply has been no transcendent vision of reality that has gripped the artistic imagination like the vision of Jesus. The Jesus movement changed political theory, changed how we think about statecraft. Jesus made some quite staggering statements in this regard. He said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. He also said that he had a kingdom, but he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And this is one of, if not the most influential statement in political history. Up until that moment, it was assumed that the state always had the franchise on religion because religion is part of what held the state together. So there was no phrase like church-state because there was no thought of any other kind of church or any other kind of religion. Of course, whoever was in charge of the state or the tribe was also in charge of religion. That's what bound people together. And then from Jesus and on to Augustine and Martin Luther and John Locke developed this idea of the notion of limited government. That even kings will answer to a higher power, that the state should not run religion or vice versa. Jesus changed how we think of human rights and dignity. And you all will know these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and have been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Now, where did this idea come from? Because 
A lot of people in the ancient world did not hold it to be self-evident. Aristotle said some men are born to be slaves. It was just understood. So where did this idea come from? That all human beings are created equal and have been endowed by their creator. You often hear people in our day say things like, uh, I believe in a God of love. Well, that's an idea that came from someplace. In the ancient world, nobody said, I love Zeus. Nobody said, I love Baal or I love Molech. It was Jesus who brought from Israel to the rest of the world a new way of thinking about God and love. When I was a kid, I grew up in Rockford, Illinois, and I used to play a game when I was little called Daddy's Home. And about 5 o'clock every day, I would hear the door slam downstairs. And so I would go running down the stairs, and I would take a flying leap, and I would end up in my father's arms. And I always knew that briefcase would be set down, and his arms would be stretched out, and my dad would grab me. And I loved that game because it meant my father loved me, Daddy's Home. And then one day my mom told me I would have to stop playing the game. My dad couldn't bring himself to do it. My mom told me. And I said, why? I don't want to stop. And she said, well, it's not that your father doesn't love you, because he does. And it's not that he won't always be there for you, because he will. It's just that you're 37 years old. <laughs> you know, sooner or later, human arms get a little tired. Jesus would tell stories about God that did not exist in the ancient world, that God is like a father who is racked by tormented love for his most wayward child. God is love. And see, this has serious implications about human worth and dignity. So it is written, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one. One dignity, one worth, one value, one beloved status in Christ Jesus. A historian named Thomas Cahill writes that this is the first expression of egalitarianism, of human equality in human history. Now, very often Christian individuals and nations and churches and leaders violate this. But the power of Jesus' teaching has this subversive way of refusing to stay submerged. And it keeps bubbling up. And that's why reform movements like abolition so often are overwhelmingly led by Christians. Jesus uniquely taught love of enemies. And again, the idea that you're supposed to love your enemy, that's not a natural human idea. Uh, in Rome, the idea was help your friends, but hurt your enemies. There's a movie called Conan the Barbarian. Anybody here ever see Conan the Barbarian? I'm not recommending the movie, but uh, in it, it's actually paraphrasing Genghis Khan, the historical figure Genghis Khan, when he gave his famous answer to the question, what is best in life? And the statement is, to crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentations of their women. But there was once a man who said, turn the other cheek. Somebody forces you to go with them one mile, go with them two. Love your enemy and bless those who persecute you. And these were not just words. As Jesus died, he said about those who were executing him, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And his followers could never forget this. 
And we're told by one ancient writer, when they suffered for Jesus, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames. Nero would take followers of Jesus and cover them with pitch to use them as human torches to light gladiator games. And this went on, on and off, for three centuries. And their response was not the dream of revenge. It was not to start an armed revolt, but to love and to pray for Nero. And this association of Jesus with love for enemies is so strong that a historian, not a Christian historian, Hannah Arndt from Princeton wrote, the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of... Who was this man? He inspired... Uh, a man named Tolstoy, a writer named Tolstoy. Tolstoy wrote a book called Resurrection, and that book inspired a lawyer named Gandhi to begin a community movement of reconciliation. The last letter Tolstoy ever wrote beyond his immediate family was to Gandhi to praise this self-sacrificing love of this man Jesus. In the most famous speech in America of the 20th century, a preacher, a follower of Jesus named Martin Luther King departed from his script to quote the prophet, justice is going to roll like the waters, righteousness like a mighty stream. And the crowd could not keep quiet. And they shouted out, tell it, Martin, tell it, amen, like a church crowd. Not like this church crowd, like the kind that answers you back when you talk. And, <laughs> and, and Martin Luther King couldn't go back to his script. And so a great singer, Mahalia Jackson, piped up from out of the choir, tell him about the dream, Martin. dream of a world that is not yet but will one day be and that is not a secular dream it was inspired by the one that Martin Luther King followed by the Jesus whose name and life draws us here today see the real question is not who was this man the real question for you at the beginning of this series the real question who is this man I will tell you who he is the hinge of history. He is the hope of the oppressed. He is the inspiration of the despairing. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is the greatest teacher who ever taught, the greatest mind that ever thought. He offered the greatest gift ever given. He launched the greatest movement ever known. He alone mastered life. He alone conquered death. He alone overcame sin. He alone grows more, not less present with every passing year. He is the Son of God and the glory of humankind. The crucified carpenter of Nazareth is the hope of the nations and the Savior of the world. And that's who this man is. I would love to pray. I just want to say kind of a pastoral word to all of you listening to this message. Whatever you think about God, whatever is going on in your life, whatever your opinion of Jesus, he will make himself known to you. He really does this for people. He still does this, and he'll do it for you. And I hope you devote yourself really fully to this series, not just coming here to learn about it, but to read the Gospels about him and to study his impact on our world and to run the experiment of what happens when you begin to do what he says to do. And I'd love to pray for you right now.
Thank you, God, for this great church. Thank you for everybody listening to these words. We marvel again, God, whatever we think about the idea of religion or supernatural or any of that, we just marvel at this life that has left such an inexplicable wake in the seas of human history. Would you help every man and every woman as they reflect on his life and reflect on theirs to be illumined and may each come to meet this man Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.